With your hosts, Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa, who is behind the boards, as usual. And uh, he's waving to the audience at home. Matt, you know how this works, right? This is radio. Can't, radio? Can't wave at radio. I remember radio. Okay. From back when you are just a, a young whippersnapper? Yes. Not with us tonight is science advisor Matt Moniz. He is out in the field, which I, I don't know how much we can call this out in the field, per se. I mean, he's with uh, he's with a number of noted investigators who have been on the show a number of times: Keith Johnson, Carl Johnson, Sandra Johnson, Donna Lacroix, uh, some of the other prominent Rhode Island area investigators. But they're they're at Tom D'Agostino's house investigating his house, which is supposedly very haunted. It was one of the purchasing points for Tom D'Agostino, author of Haunted Rhode Island, Haunted Massachusetts, and, and numerous other books coming out from Schiffer Publishing. But it sounds to me like they're really just having a party at Tom's house, yeah. and they might accidentally turn on an EMF detector by mistake if they don't pay attention to what they're doing. Is this the first time they've investigated over there, or uh, is it? Is all together yeah. as a group? I think so. Yeah. But uh, I'm sure you know Tom and Arlene have done a number of you know mini investigations in, in the home since they moved in, and I'm sure Moniz has investigated their fridge. Oh yeah. You know, see if there's a. <laughs> Any apportation of objects in the fridge. Somehow that roast beef sandwich disappeared from the refrigerator and manifested in my stomach. So. <laughs> but uh, we will check in with science advisor Matt Moniz a little bit later on. Uh, we Tonight we are going to talk to Dr. Susan B. Martinez. Uh, she is an independent scholar, journalist, and activist who received her doctorate in anthropology from Columbia University in the 1970s. Raised by agnostic intellectual parents in Brooklyn, she found her way to spiritualism in the early 1980s. She has since researched and wrote on psychic phenomena, specializing in modern spiritualism in the Victorian era, and she is currently book review editor at the Academy of Spirituality and Paranormal Studies. And we're going to talk to her about her latest book, The Psychic Life of Abraham Lincoln. How are you tonight, Susan? I'm just fine. Now, Abraham Lincoln is uh, probably my personal favorite president. There's just some sort of connection I've made with him, and I think a number of Americans have made a connection with him. He seems to be the first uniquely American president is the way I like to look at it. Um, you know, born in Kentucky, and he just seems to be, you know, the first true all-American president. And when you're talking about spiritualism in regards to Abraham Lincoln – you have what is, in my opinion, I know that there was a number of other spiritualist movements around the world, but spiritualism was really founded here in America. So you have, you know, you're tying in a uniquely American president with a uniquely American religious idea. Right. Is that something that, you know, you, you and I would think that might go hand in hand, but how does that appeal to the rest of the world? Well, should we talk about you and I first or the rest of the world later? <laughs> 
Um, well, all I want to say is that uh, uh, Lincoln uh, reached his prime just at the time that the first outbreak of uh, spiritual messages came through in 1848. So he was a grown man. He was just uh, part of the most of American intelligentsia was interested in this, but it spiritual spiritualism reached to every class. It swept the country. It started in uh, New York State in 1848 and was already in Lincoln's Illinois by 1850. It's just to me, it just seems like it would naturally go hand in hand. Here you have somebody Abraham Lincoln. From everything that we know about him, he wasn't. You know this college-educated, you know, years in in academia uh, type of a president. He was kind of self-taught. Learned a lot from books that he read. You know, growing up. Uh, you know, we all have the pictures of him that we see in our, our elementary school history books of young Abe Lincoln reading by the fire in the log cabin. Right. You know, this is he's a real grassroots kind of intellect. So it's not surprising that he would want to at least look into the idea of spiritualism if it was so prominent during that period. Yeah, and uh, at at the uh, deepest level, there was something happening uh, in this nation. There was something happening in America, and it was coming to a head. I mean, uh, you can't really look at it as a coincidence that the spiritual movement arose in the 1850s, and then the Civil War and the uh, Emancipation Proclamation in the next decade these events were all connected, but you have to dig a little bit and look at 19th century history to understand it. It's so hard for people to, uh, of today to understand what spiritualism meant back in the mid-19th century because, you know, now it's either spiritualism is a, a religion, a, a practice, a daily uh, life path for some, and to the rest of the world it's kind of, they look back at it as a hoax. Uh, right, but um, this is something that, uh, if you look at the prophecy that's connected to it, is going to take centuries. And uh, its uh, birth, its beginning, was mid-century, uh, 19th century. Uh, it uh, carried through right until the First World War, and then things sort of started to break up. Then, uh, then when did the New Age come along? It came along what, in the 1960s or 70s, mm-hmm. so we're into a new phase of it. At this point, uh, in the psychic journals, uh, they are focusing on NDEs, near-death experiences, and this is the vehicle through which we, in our time, due to uh, medical miracles and uh, resuscitation techniques, are uh, investigating what the other side is like. So it's going to be passing through stages, but even if it looks like it's in embryo now, it is still growing, and it has a very large future to it. It seems like uh, if you look at the rise of spiritualism uh, originally and both in its later resurgences in different forms, it definitely seems to coincide with times of national uh, upheaval or national strife. I mean, especially when you see it peaking around the time of the Civil War and then coming back into fashion after World War One, and like you said, even in the 60s, you know, with the Vietnam conflict and just oh, how much so the world true. was changing. Yeah. Uh, not only on a national basis, but 
also on an individual basis. People who have gone through a very deep uh, grief uh, process and bereavement, uh, many of those people begin to learn something about spirit world. And it seems like until you can make that connection, you know, many people will scoff at it until they actually have a chance to realize that there's there's something more going on. And it seems like that's what happened with Abraham Lincoln from an early age. Well, that's true. Uh, Lincoln himself had a near-death experience when he was 10 years old, and I think it opened up his psyche. Uh, he himself said later in his life that there was... He cannot recall any time at which he did not know that he would at some day be president of the United States. So he was uh, precognitive. He had a premonitory sense. He had the psyche opened. And for somebody who didn't come from a, a background uh, of some of the former presidents uh, being in that political life and being in that forefront of leadership, from an early age, it must have sounded kind of crazy coming from a Kentucky farmer. Uh, yes, but uh, there were people who did believe him, like Mr. Ofoot. When Lincoln was a young man, he worked in Ofoot's uh, store, and he did such a bang-up job that Ofoot said, this is the best man in the country. He can do anything. There were some who, who did believe it. Well, I mean, it just goes to show you the, the type of figure that he was, that he attracted that that uh, leadership air around him. Yes, and he was also told by a, a fortune teller when he was 22 that he would someday be a president of the United States. So now while he's having these these visions and these, uh, I don't want to say visions even at that age, just these general notions uh, about his future at an early age, you know, ac across the country in New York we have the, the rise of spiritualism uh, starting with the Fox sisters. Uh, at least in Lincoln's early goings, I mean, how much uh, of that type of news would come across his plate? I mean, is that something that he would have been drawn to early on, or is it something that, you know, later on he would investigate that? I think it was, um, when he was in his 20s, he kind of had a reputation for being a debunker of dogmatic religion. Mm -hmm. And he himself wrote a book. It's the only book Lincoln ever wrote. Uh, they called it the Little Infidel book because he was criticizing point by point things in the Bible that couldn't possibly be true. On the other hand, he was a great admirer of some of the prose and wisdom in the Bible, but he, was, he established himself as a free thinker early on. I don't think it was until the death of uh, his second son, Eddie, in 1850 uh, that uh, got more serious about the spirit world and his inquiries into it. And, of course, that's right around the time that the, the Fox sisters were taking their, their show on the road. That's exactly right. By that time, uh, they were in uh, the spiritualist movement had moved into Illinois, and mediums were available. This was almost like an overnight thing. Uh, people would become clairvoyant practically overnight because it was, it was spreading. It had that kind of impact. Well, were people becoming clairvoyant overnight, or were people paying more attention to their clairvoyant abilities? I mean, that beforehand it might not have been, you know, proper to talk about these these um, abilities, uh, but with the rise of spirituals, and maybe it made people more open to admitting that they were having these experiences. Right. It's all a matter of uh, the atmosphere because this concerns subtle energies, so it's only in an atmosphere of rapport that that it can develop. 
So just for those who aren't familiar, why don't you try to give a little bit of a background of, of spiritualism and, and how it started? Well, uh, do you want to talk about the Fox uh, I mean, even, even before, I mean, for the most part, I mean, that's what we look to as the, you know, the, the beginning point, the birth point of spiritualism. But people have been, you know, talking with spirits and people have been, you know, interacting with them for centuries before that. I mean, right. it's, the Fox sisters weren't the first example of, of spirit rapping, right. for example. Right. Well, you, if, you, we, if we could go back to the uh, Enlightenment, the Age of Reason, which would be the, the 18th century, mm-hmm. that's where they started to um, try to dispel the superstitions of the world and replace it with uh, reason and logic and um, uh, inductive, inductive uh, observation with a scientific approach. Um, that's good because everything happens according to what's needed in the times. So that started to clear the way for objective thinking. Um, however, it, it doesn't mean to dismiss the unknown factors in life, but it was just a stage in the history of ideas. Shortly after the uh, Enlightenment comes along mesmerism, and this, I would say, was the forerunner of spiritualism, because here you had your mesmerists and your magnetizers and a, a recognition of an invisible energy. Uh, then comes uh, spiritualism, the Fox sisters, and uh, it caught on like brush fire. It crossed the Atlantic within just a few years. American mediums started visiting uh, London, and it caught on real big there and then by the 60s when Lincoln's administration began and the Civil War was coming on uh, I would say England got even stronger uh, in uh, developing mediumship and when the Fox sisters did kind of come out to the public and it was it was met with such you know acclaim to those who were going to their demonstrations uh, it kind of would open up the door for more people who had these abilities to say okay now I'm going to put myself out there and make myself available as a medium uh, but it also creates a, a huge possibility of you know fakes and, and charlatans as well uh, how hard was it back in those days to distinguish between who is just trying to get your money and who is actually making communication with the other side um, Tim I don't think it's any different uh, today that uh it's left to a person's good judgment whether you're dealing with a fake and a phony or uh, whether you have a genuine article in front of you. I think uh, there, there's no test in the world that's better than uh, the kingdom of good judgment. Because there's been a number of past uh, supposed mediums from from that time period who have been exposed. I mean, uh, Harry Houdini made it his personal crusade to, to try and prove some of these spiritualist is wrong, uh, uh, Harry Price, some of these early investigators into paranormal phenomena went after these spirituals pretty hard, but obviously, you know, there had to be some people making that connection because, you know, the movement was able to survive and it was able to thrive. Well, you know, even the best mediums, the ones who got caught up in uh, professionalism, would uh, had a couple of tricks up their sleeves when the power wasn't there. Sure. You know, uh, there are quite a few stories you could refer to where uh, genuine mediums did resort to tricks. Um, And there was, 
you know, like nowadays, look how many phonies there are. Uh, uh, advertising healing or advertising just any crazy metaphysical things. It's all a great assortment. We have to decide for ourselves what has the uh, element of truth to it. And for a person such as Abraham Lincoln, who we know to be of great intellect, you know, it wouldn't have been that hard for him to be able to distinguish who was who was phony and who wasn't. He seemed to have a knack through his life for lining up with pretty uh, pretty on the level people. Right. He had an assortment of uh, phony soothsayers assailing him, coming to the White House, approaching him, sending letters with warnings and uh, what have you, and he knew who who to dismiss and who to take seriously. He had, uh, he even became very well acquainted with the spirit controls. Um, uh, let's say uh, Nettie Colburn, who was his, just about the favorite White House medium for uh, Marianne Abraham. Uh, Lincoln became familiar with, he became particularly fond of one of Nettie's uh, spirit controls, which means the discarnate mentor who was controlling her at the time she was in trance, that person, that spirit was Dr. Bamford, and Lincoln would always listen and be interested in what Dr. Bamford X had to say, and in fact took his advice uh, on the occasion of um, a breakdown in morale uh, among the Union troops. That was early in 1863. Dr. Bamford, the spirit control, had advised Lincoln to solve the problems by going personally to the war front and making a three-day tour, and he, in fact, did do that. And wasn't he shot at when he went on that tour? Um, the time he was shot at when the bullet went through his hat was when he was riding on horseback to the soldier's home, which is uh, three miles north of the um, White House. Okay. So the, the advice of Dr. Bamford didn't put him in any kind of danger then? No. <laughs> so in, didn't he also, through, through Nettie, uh, wasn't he also able to communicate with the spirit of Daniel Webster? Uh, well, it was Daniel Webster X who was communicating with Lincoln because that was the voice. It was not only Lincoln who recognized it. Uh, Lincoln knew uh, Daniel Webster from uh, Lincoln's, uh, years in Congress, that's 1847 and 1848. Uh, Daniel Webster was the leading Whig and the greatest uh, orator in Congress. Um, Lincoln knew him and loved him. Of course, he was deceased by the time these messages were coming through Nettie, and Nettie was a tiny little woman, and all of a sudden this booming uh, voice is coming through uh, using the English parliamentary manner and the sonorous tone of Daniel Webster. It was not only Lincoln who noticed this, but a few other people who were attending this translecture and felt for a certainty that it was Webster. Now, in addition to these connections that he made in his, in his personal life, uh, I mean, in his professional life with Daniel Webster and, and others who would come through to give advice once he became president or once he was in political office. Lincoln also had quite a bit of tragedy in his early life, and I could see him, even before you know the passing of his sons, I could see him trying to make connections with, say, his mother or uh, his first love, Anne Rutledge. Is there any 
in your research, is there any uh, instances where he was trying to make connections with, with either of those women? Um, I think so. Uh, I don't think we have the full uh, story on this yet. It so happens that there was a English medium, someone in England, who proclaimed that while uh, Lincoln was in the White House, he was getting messages uh, from his mother. And there are also suggestions uh, here and there, n nothing too definite, but that he uh, also was put in contact with the spirit of Anne Rutledge from time to time. Certainly, there are people who, uh, um, Billy Herndon, for example, his law partner from Springfield, felt that the death of Anne was the most um, deeply stirring thing in, in Lincoln's life and that it did affect his thinking and did affect his uh, attitude toward the spirit world. I've read a number of uh, biographies of Lincoln and, and books about Lincoln where it suggests that, you know, the melancholy persona that we know him to have today is, you know, has its origin in the death of Anne Rutledge that before then, you know, he was um, not so much a happy-go-lucky guy, but because he was, you know, he's abused by his father, supposedly, uh, in his younger days, and he had kind of a rough childhood and a rough start, but that he came out of that patch when he met Anne, uh, but that, you know, her death just kind of sunk him back into that that lifelong depression. Right. It was a steady stream of tragedy for Lincoln. He was nine years old when his mother died. Um, he was 18 years old when his only sister, a beloved friend, died in childbirth. Uh, he was just a little boy when his only little brother died. And uh, then as a grown man, he started losing his sons. Uh, so he had a steady stream of it. In, in today's world, you know, it's not uncommon for us to see somebody who's gone through that much tragedy, you know, turn to psychics or turn to spirituality in some form. Uh, I know plenty of people who have had tragedy and, and gone to gone in that direction to try to find uh, not only answers but to make reconnections with those that they've lost. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that Abraham Lincoln would surely try to do the same thing as well. I'm, I'm sure that it had a lot to do with it. I mean, beyond. I mean, here you have a guy who, uh, if you look at this dynamic that you have going on, he's he's someone who is, you know, so profoundly intellectual, and uh, his ideas of uh, spirituality and religion come from himself. You know, he's not really buying into a lot of these organized religions. He has his own view of of God, and so he's going to make his own judgments in that regard. He's not going to follow, say, the you know the churches rules about spirituality or anything like that and at the same time he's also this emotionally affected we can almost speculate emotionally crippled individual by all these tragedies so you've got this dynamic of you know the intellect and the emotion both feeding into him so he's looking at spiritualism from both perspectives right is there any way that you know he could just be getting drawn, you know, caught up in this, caught up in because of all this grief that he suffered, that he could have, you know, bought into some sort of phony medium, some sort of, you know, phony soothsayer. And these you know, these stories are all just him trying to make that connection still. Or is his just his intellect going to dominate what goes on? Intellect dominate. That's, that's what I would think. Too. <laughs> 
All right, why don't we take our first break here, and when we come back, we'll talk some more with Susan Martinez, Ph.D., author of The Psychic Life of Abraham Lincoln. We'll also take your calls at 508-996-0500, We'll be right back in a few minutes here on Spooky South Coast. Don't look now, but Spooky South Coast is creeping up behind you right after this. Turn on all your lights, lock the doors, and pull down the shades. Spooky South Coast is back. Captain's Lodge, star date 5906.4. Who or what has been beamed aboard our vessel? An alien who has changed himself into this form, an illusion? I cannot conceive it possible that Abraham Lincoln could have actually been reincarnated. Hey, Blake. Did you say Abe Lincoln? Four score and seven years ago, our fathers brought forth on this continent a new nation, conceived in liberty and dedicated to the proposition that all men are created equal. Anybody here see my old friend Abraham? Can you tell me where he's gone? Welcome back to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here, along with the silent assassin Matt Costa. And we are talking to Susan Martinez, Ph.D., author of The Psychic Life of Abraham Lincoln. You can get it uh, from Amazon.com and anywhere where you buy books. Uh, you can also get it. We'll have it linked up uh, later on this week on SpookySouthCoast.com as well, so you can purchase the book there as well. We're trying to make sure that we have the books that our authors that come on the show, uh, we make them available through the website to make it easy for everybody to find them all in one spot. So, we uh, And we also appreciate, you know, if you go there and, and do it through there as well because it helps support the show as well as all of our fine authors. So if you have a question for Dr. Martinez, you can give us a call at 508-996-0500 or 508-291-0500. It's all on the table, the spiritual life of Abraham Lincoln, the psychic life of Abraham Lincoln, and spiritualism in general as well. Uh, one thing that I've always wondered when it comes to spiritualism is, you know, what types of people were drawn to this? Uh, I always thought, you know, going into the early early looks uh, early looking i'm sorry my early looking into the subject matter i always made the connection that it was kind of more the you know the the general public the the middle class you know it was one of these sweeping things that came through because it went through so rapidly i just made the assumption that it was the the common folk that really got wrapped up in spiritualism and that and that movement i never really took into account people such as abraham lincoln or some of these you know really influential people of the time would get wrapped up in this movement and there's a number of them, Susan, who were right on the forefront of this from, from the early going. Well, I, this, you know, it, when it came forth in uh, Hydesville uh, at the Fox family, it was predicted that it would uh, run from the cottage to the castle. And it did that. It ran through all the classes of society. But if you take the most illustrious, uh, contemporaries of Lincoln who were anywhere from a little bit to a great deal involved in spiritualism. It would include Harriet Beecher Stowe, the Bronte sisters, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, Queen Victoria, Alfred Lord Tennyson, Mrs. Hawthorne, William Lloyd Garrison, William Makepeace Thackeray, Louisa May Alcott, Emily Dickinson, James Fenimore Cooper, 
Mark Twain, and quite a few others. Some of the most influential thinkers of the time, for sure. That's right. And one one person who was had at least some uh, interest and some involvement in spiritualism has a close connection uh, nearby to where we are. We're, we're right outside of New Bedford, Massachusetts, and uh, Frederick Douglass was was involved to some degree as well, right? Uh, yes, he was. He he was involved in uh, sittings, and he ended up, I think, in 1847 in Rochester, New York. He set up his. Uh, um, his business there, you know, he he started a newspaper called the North Star. Mm-hmm. You know, that was the star that guided the runaway slaves north. Uh, so there was Frederick uh, Douglass in Rochester, which is just, you know, a few miles from Hydesville, where the whole thing began. Susan B. Anthony was also located there. So this was a sign of a new order, and uh, there, it combined a sisterhood of reforms. Religion would be reformed. Uh, women's uh, rights would come forth. Slavery would be abolished. Uh, temperance and drinking was also part of this. Uh, so uh, there it is in the burnt-out district that they called it, where the spiritualism began all the other stuff was going on as well. And it is amazing, the, the parallels between a lot of it, because, you know, women were some of the most significant mediums of the time. I mean, obviously, you know, D.D. Hume being the biggest of the time, being a male, but you know, there was a lot of these mediums, especially the, the message mediums, a lot of them were women, and so that kind of gave them more value in the eyes of the men, and certainly a number of them were abolitionists and involved in that movement. So it's almost like, you know, what's on the other side is telling us, you know, that all men are created equal, uh, all men and women are created equal, and it kind of helped further some of those beliefs. I mean, maybe without the spiritualism movement, uh, some of those beliefs would have taken longer to come into the public consciousness. Well, it it seems like uh, every aspect of it was destined to come out because the year... Uh, to, this is to my own uh, belief, but I think to some extent it can be shown. Uh, the year 1848 marked out a new era, and uh, from that time forth, and we're still a work in progress here, uh, from that time forth a new paradigm is being established in the world. Spiritualism is just part of it. Politics is just part of it. It, it really is. It, when you do look back at all the things that have gone on in that time period and, and what an effect it had worldwide, uh, but one of the things that it really did as well is it either, to some people, it either drew them closer to organized religion, you know, in their uh, bombardment against spiritualism, and in other ways, you know, it opened up a lot of a lot more free thinking in terms of religious beliefs as well. Right. Now, uh, we stay in that same period, uh, mid-century, 19th, and we've also got a Marx and a Darwin. So uh, the science front, <coughs> excuse me, the science frontier was being blasted. The uh, socio-political career was being blasted. It was all happening. Uh, then uh, a few decades later, you would have a Freud and 
and Einstein to continue the same uh, development, mm-hmm. the greatest names we could possibly cite in the history of ideas. Because uh, in my own belief, we are in it, the age of truth. The Hindus call it Satya Yuga. And I don't know how their prophets reckon it, but I believe that is the era we have entered now. So we're not out for the half-truth anymore or the fairy tales, but as all these great thinkers show, we're out for the whole truth. And it's almost like when you're getting some of that truth from the other side, uh, it's it's more pure than what you're being told. Well, yes, because uh, what the other side has to tell us is uh, irreplaceable. It's part of the truth that uh, life goes on, that the uh, materialist philosophy has hit a dead end. And we've, and in order to go on in any of our interests or understanding or knowledge, we have to uh, begin to comprehend the invisible world. We already did that when we started discovering germs and atoms and all kinds of things that we cannot see. Now, the, the Fox sisters... Uh you know, being the most famous, you know, uh, amongst the showmanship style of spiritualism, uh, they obviously hooked up with with characters such as P.T. Barnum and, and some of these other promoters, uh, including their own sister, Leah, who promoted a lot of their events as well. But they kind of added this showmanship aspect to it. But for the most part, during this time period, wasn't a lot of spiritualism practiced, you know, in private homes, uh, in these sittings and seances that they would have, you know, in... in their home with just a few invited guests yeah that's right it was mostly it mostly spread uh by virtue of home circles which were private affairs and uh like i said overnight practically overnight mediumship was striking people uh at the same time they instituted uh public uh sittings they uh put young kate fox into uh a room on Broadway. This is in the early 1850s. She was just a, a teenager. Um, the society that sponsored her made it possible for the public to come in and get free readings. And this was also the case for Lincoln. Uh, uh, by the 1850s as well, there were large public sittings and they were free and a person could uh, kind of come and go anonymously as opposed to a, a private or small sitting where everybody would know who was there. Uh, Lincoln was spotted as one of these anonymous visitors who had some uh, remarkable messages from the spirit world, and that story was finally made public uh, at the end of 1860, just after he was elected, and the Cleveland Plain Dealer brought out that story about his uh, visits to public sittings. But it wasn't exactly a, a favorable story. Uh, it, it, it's an interesting point because the the medium who recognized him was very well known in that time, both in Washington and New York. His name was J.B. Conklin. Uh, he finally realized it was Lincoln who was this uh, tall, lanky guy coming and going to the public sittings, and he wrote up an article about it and about the manifestations and the messages. Uh, for the for the plane dealer in Cleveland, Ohio, and then they went ahead. The plane dealer went ahead 
and contacted Lincoln and said, uh, we're going to do this, and you have uh, an opportunity to contradict or deny this, because he was just about to come into office, mm-hmm. and this story had come out. Uh, Lincoln said the only falsehood in the article is that it does not come close to covering all the wonderful things I have witnessed. And I didn't quote him exactly, but it's it's almost just like that. Well, weren't there some critics that tried to use uh, his attendance in these events uh, to sway people against voting for him uh, when he was running for president? Well, that's right. His enemies did try to use it. Um, uh, they <laughs> conjured up really stupid scenarios of how he uh, had a secret hole in the White House and table wrappings were telling him what to do and he followed it blindly. But this is obviously just yellow journalism and an attempt to seize at anything to to knock down an enemy. As a journalist myself, uh, I've often pushed for the return of yellow journalism because it's just so much easier and more interesting to just make <laughs> stuff up. And I kind of agree with you. <laughs> it's, I'd much rather read one of those newspapers than the ones that are out today. I mean, I know what you mean. Facts are boring, but uh, <laughs> it does seem though like you know here you are at a time when the nation is in great upheaval, and we're looking to Abraham Lincoln to lead us uh, to be the light in the darkness for us, and. For a majority of Americans, they they couldn't really have been that enthralled with the idea of him taking direction from the other side. Um, are, you, are you asking, or uh, well, I'm, I'm, I mean, does that seem like you know that'd be the notion that that would be why they would attack him? That would be what the criticism would be for the most part. It was his political enemies who jumped on it to uh, have something to attack him with. Uh, the people didn't feel that way. Mm-hmm. A lot of the people. Uh, were swayed by spiritualism at that point. And uh, I would say that the issues of the war were uh, more compelling to people. Almost every family had uh, a son or a father gone off to war. So uh, the issue of resolving the war uh, had to take precedence over uh, what Lincoln was doing. I think we're more concerned today about it than his contemporaries were. Because if you look at it, you know, in today's terms, if, if if George Bush came out and said, you know, that he was communicating with aliens and that they were giving him advice uh, in the war on terror, then you could just imagine what the reaction would be from people. Even even those who believe in, in the idea of aliens would say, well, why is he listening to them? Uh, well, in Lincoln's day, it was pretty well known that he was a mystical sort of person. He was a great lover of poetry and uh he had that dreamy uh, side to him. Uh, so it was somewhat accepted and eventually appreciated that he was a man of uh, a warm heart. Now, uh, well, he has the, certainly had the uh, makeup of being somebody that would have psychic abilities. He had that, you know, that basic belief in the goodness of people and, the, you know, that, that love of his fellow man. He had, he had all the all the qualities that you would look for in somebody that would have these psychic abilities where you're searching someone out as such. But for the most part, a lot of times, you know, you hear stories about people who some sort of event gets them in touch with these, and you talked about his near-death experience. Uh, Didn't he have a direct blow to the head as well? Yes. uh, When he fell off that horse at the grain mill at the age of 10, um, 
he must have fallen on his head because he sustained some kind of uh, head trauma. Um, I have in the book where Dr. Kempf goes into it and tries to analyze what kind of uh, permanent effect it had on him. He It resulted, I think, in diplopia where uh, the two eyes were not completely coordinated, uh, but also the uh, head trauma itself is such an earmark of psychic beginnings. It's, it's just a number of people that I've looked into, you know, usually hear about that somewhere in their past, that they've had some sort of you know, blow to the head and that triggers these abilities. And, you know, to, to have that near-death experience and to get him closer to that, and it's, you know, just opening up that portal, opening up that window for him. Absolutely. Uh, now, and you also talk uh, early on in the book about how, and you mentioned his eyes, but you talked about how he would kind of, one eye would kind of flutter, and that's when he was going into, like, trance-like states. That's what they say. Um, he he, he uh, just slipped in and out of the alpha state. Uh, people were just amazed. There were some foreign diplomats at one point who visited with him and claimed that he alternated from you know, what we today would call the beta to the alpha state 20 times in the course of their visit with him. Uh, this might be called rapid cycling from back and forth. Uh, this was very typical of Lincoln. And it's basically going from like a, an alert consciousness to kind of like a subconscious? Is yeah, a drowsy state, um, uh, sort of like dozing off. People who were not sensitive to this sort of thing thought that he was uh, just napping or that he'd gone dopey. Mm -hmm. uh, but people who were more aware of altered states of consciousness realized that uh, he was in and out of uh, the two realities. I mean, I I do the same same thing myself, but I'm also narcoleptic. So I wonder if maybe that was, was something similar where you know he was just dropping into that subconscious. I mean, it, it it makes you more alert of what's going on in that subconscious realm, but I think that, you know, he definitely could have fit the physical characteristics of somebody who might have had, you know, that type of affliction as well. Uh, one of the um, most interesting incidents uh, that relates to wartime events is when uh, he was in the White House and he just started dozing off and all of a sudden... He had a vision, and it was a bad one. So he he woke up, he took off, he ran to the telegraph office. You know, that was his lifestyle, just running back and forth between the White House and the telegraph office all those years. He ran to the telegraph office and asked the operator to please communicate with uh, the uh, uh, union commanders because he had a vision in that moment of dozing off of uh, of the Confederates breaking through the federal line. Mm -hmm. And the operator did make the communication and did, in fact, get that same report as Lincoln had given him. He said, how do you know? And Lincoln said, man, I saw it. It is. It's, it's fascinating when you hear about some of these visions that he had and what he was able to to foresee, it, was, it wasn't so much that he was seeing, you know, far into the future. You know, he wasn't having these prophetic Nostradamus-like visions, but he was, he had some sort of 
special pulse on what was going on, especially in regards to the war, it seemed like. That's right. And it's even said in the OASPE book, which I consulted for some of the uh, Lincoln story, that he was selected by the angels to be the president because he was just the man who had enough contact with the unseen principle to get the message of the angels, which was to free the slaves. You know, and when we look back in in history, uh, especially in biblical history, and we we hear about some of these prophets, uh, it's it's not quite uncommon for prophets to have faith, but not really be believers in God per se. Uh, they have faith in some divine power, but they're not you know devout followers of God. Uh, they kind of like Lincoln have their own you know way of the world, their own thinking of of what religion is, and maybe he just follows that path. Maybe he's just another one of these prophets in that long line. I think that's so true. <clears throat> Excuse me. Uh, I do think that he uh, ultimately stands as a prophet for America uh, because, you know, he did uh, connect between the two worlds and that he uh, t- took the bold move to follow the destiny of America where it was headed and it's also true that, um, you see, if you go back to the history of the prophets themselves, they fall into two categories. The kind of prophet who was aware of his overshadowing and of, of his spiritual mentors, and the kind of prophet like uh, Confucius, for example, who was not aware of any angelic presence, mm-hmm. but just was inspired, presumably with his own ideas. Lincoln would fall in the uh, second category of men who had faith, uh, who felt uh, a higher power, but who mm, didn't really have a philosophy to wrap around it. He just uh, believed in it. And he also seems like one of these uh, figures where, and especially in the, in the book, you do a great job with pulling some of these out. And as you read through the psychic life of Abraham Lincoln, uh, there's a number of little highlighted areas where it's uh, relevant quotes and relevant notations uh, from other works and from Lincoln himself that help uh, accentuate what you're writing about at the time. But when you read some of these lines from Lincoln, it seems like he has these little messages that he passed on you know, to future generations, just these little one-line bits of wisdom that might have been buried in the course of some other speech, and, you know, they don't have the, the quite the lasting impact uh, on everyday life as something like a, a house divided amongst itself cannot stand. But they're little quotations that you do a great job of pulling out that just show, you know, he was kind of showing us a path that we can follow uh, just in his common everyday life. Uh, yeah, he was uh, kind of a genius for the one-liner and the appropriate line for a, a situation. And I, I think it, it makes him a very memorable character. There are some wonderful quotes. Uh, uh, I, I, I'm thinking of some of his quotes about slavery, but I can't quote them directly. I mean, just... Even not only about slavery in general, but just about man's relationship to God, um, you know, the position of this country in the world. And uh, it seemed like, you know, for every Walt Whitman, for every Carl Sandburg that was able to write about Lincoln and able to to create these 
wonderful words describing Lincoln and describing his life and his personage, Lincoln himself had just as many words, you know, that that are just as poetic uh, that just don't seem that way in the course of, say, a political speech or or an address at battle. Yeah, but if we go back over it, and we, and we do find those aphorisms, they have the same immortal ring that any of the great uh, geniuses would have. Uh, Lincoln's um, most favorite pastime was poetry. And reading aloud, you know, he had a certain theatrical gift. Um, so he, that's what he aspired for. Uh, he's, he's, his favorite poem was, Why Should the Spirit of Mortal Be Proud? It was a Scotch poem. And he said it one, and he repeated it so often and memorized the verses so well that people thought he was the author. And when he was asked about it, he said, I'd give anything to be the author of a work like this. It really was his great love, poetry and drama, Shakespeare. Sure. And when you, you know, you look at the presidents of today, you know, George Bush can go on for two hours with the State of the Union address and not say anything of any <laughs> memorable worth. And here, you know, the Gettysburg address was delivered in less than under six minutes. So, all right, well, we are coming up against our last break and then we'll go into the ABC News uh, but we will come back on the other side. We'll have the Week and Weird. We'll also, we have an update about a missing paranormal investigator, so we want to make everybody aware of that as well. Uh, we'll also try and check in with Matt Moniz. And then after that, we'll get back into the discussion with Susan Martinez, Ph.D., author of The Psychic Life of Abraham Lincoln. We'll talk more about Lincoln as a person, about the dynamic of the Lincoln family and how spiritualism related to their lives. And we'll also talk more with you and take your questions at 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. And, of course, spiritualism, Abraham Lincoln, psychic life, uh, even some of the paranormal phenomena surrounding Abraham Lincoln. You know, I've done some research on that as well, and I'm sure Dr. Martinez has. We can talk more about all that as well. So stay tuned. Coming up after the news for more here on Spooky South Coast. Lost civilizations, extraterrestrials, myths and monsters, missing persons, magic and witchcraft, unexplained phenomena. For 58 years, Fate has provided true reports of the strange and unknown. Fate is a factual magazine containing articles by experts in all walks of life and by others just like you who have had something dynamic, significant, and truthful to say. Keep up with the latest on all aspects of the paranormal. Angels and miracles, psychic phenomena, ghosts, UFOs, and much, much more. To subscribe, call now at 1-800-728-2730 or visit their website at fatemag.com. That's 1-800-728-2730 or www.fatemag.com. What are you waiting for? Your fate awaits. Quite an experience to live in fear, isn't it? This me happening, man. This is me happening. Spooky so Supernatural is 
Good evening. Welcome back to our number two of Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here with the silent assassin, Matt Costa. Science advisor, Matt Moniz, is out in the field and he's on the phone. We'll get to him in just one second. I just want to make everybody aware of something. Um, we have a number of our listeners are friends of ours on MySpace, and if you're not, you can join us at myspace.com slash spooky south coast. But there's uh, been some reports going through MySpace this week, and we've been trying to forward them along and, and spread the word and help out, and we want everybody out there that's part of our MySpace to do so as well because uh, there's a, a missing paranormal investigator uh, who hasn't been heard from since February 4th, and we're trying to help get the word out so maybe we can find out what happened and, and, and locate him and hopefully he's okay uh, but if you go to our website spookysouthcoast.com uh, and you click on the latest news section there you will find a photo of the gentleman his name is michael donaldson and you'll find some more information as well as the contact info but uh just to let you know uh, he was last seen uh, his name is michael donaldson he was last seen on february 4th 2008 in Coleman, alabama he was traveling south to Dalton, Georgia for a truck driving job. He never showed up for the orientation or checked into his hotel room. He was driving a red 2002 two-door Ford F-150 series pickup truck. If you have any information on his whereabouts, contact the Birmingham, Alabama police at 205-328-9311. He was driving a 2002 red two-door short bed Ford F-150 pickup truck. And Mike Donaldson is uh, about 5'10", 5'11", in height. About 220 pounds with reddish-brown hair, mustache, and beard. He was more than likely wearing a baseball cap. So, again, SpookySouthCoast.com. Click on the latest news. You'll see a photo there of Michael Donaldson. If anybody has seen him, uh, please contact the Birmingham, Alabama police at 205-328-9311. Okay, so while we have Matt Moniz on the phone, uh, we might as well let everybody know, too, about something coming up next weekend the Atlantic Coast UFO Conference, the New Jersey MUFON Inaugural Northeastern Conference. It will take place February 15th, 16th, and the 17th at the Trump Plaza Hotel and Casino in Atlantic City, New Jersey. Uh, tickets are available on the website AtlanticCoastUFOs.com. Uh, and some of the guests that will be there include Bill Burns, the editor of UFO Magazine, Tom Carey, who will talk about Roswell death threats and deathbeds, uh, Peter Davenport, director of the National UFO Reporting Center. Richard Dolan, author of UFOs in the National Security State. Uh, Paulo Harris, uh, who will talk about the human-type aliens who are Im integrating among us. Bud Hopkins, of course, the director of the Intruders Foundation and the author of a number of best-selling books on UFO abductions. Uh, Dr. Lynn Kaite, is it, Matt? Uh, she will show the new 10th anniversary edition of the internationally award-winning documentary on the Phoenix Lights, as well as Don Ledger, who has investigated the Shag Harbor incident from 1967, uh, Sam Moranto, who will talk about the O'Hare Airport sightings, uh, Kathy Martin, who is the niece of uh, Betty Hill, and will talk about her recent book, Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO experience she wrote with Stan Friedman. Uh, Peter Robbins, of course, who has uh, spent a number of years investigating the Bent Waters and Rendlesham Forest uh, incident, author of Left and Eastgate, and uh, Farah Yurdozo, a Turkish investigator who discusses recent and very distant sightings. She's Turkey's first female UFO researcher. And, of course, uh, our favorite female UFO researcher, Matt Moniz, will also be there as well. Yep. No, no comment on me calling you a female, then. Well... Okay. I'll leave it at that. <laughs> okay. Uh, we're just kidding. Uh, our science advisor, Matt Moniz, will be there as well. Uh, now, Matt, you're going to be there for the whole three-day event? 
Uh, yes. Okay. And uh, do you have any plans on taking any Atlantic City showgirls with you to the event? No. Okay, good. Just taking them home after the there event. There you go. It's a scientific endeavor. Uh, so now, out of all these speakers, and of course you know a number of these speakers, uh, but who are you most exciting to get the chance to, to hear speak and, and maybe get a chance to uh, to talk with? Uh, all of them, actually. Mm -hmm. uh, of course, I like uh, hearing Bud and getting updates on his latest work. Peter and I have uh, been working together for you know, ever since Peter really started working on uh, Left at Eastgate and working on the Bentwaters case. Um, all of the rest of them, you know, I, I know. Uh, actually, Farah, uh, I've met a number of times, and she's actually a very good researcher, and she has a lot of interesting cases here in the United States that she's picked up as well. So I wanted to hear an update of what she's got going on recently. And, of course, Don Ledger, uh, we, we got a chance to talk with him at the Mass Monster Mash, and uh, we plan on having him here on Spooky South Coast as well to talk about the Shag Harbor incident. And I know that's something you want to get up there and, and dive in the water and, and look for this uh, for this right. UFO that's under the water. Uh, Chris Stiles, uh, who is the other co-author with uh, Don Ledger, and I have been in regular communication. Uh, Don and I are... I, have uh, spoke as as you mentioned when we were at um, the Mass Monster Mash, and uh, both Chris and Don are going to help me out when I get up there. Uh, Chris is a really nice guy, and uh, I know that um, you have the chance to uh, actually analyze Betty Hill's dress. Uh, have you ever yes, talked to her niece, Kathy Martin, before? No, I haven't. So you'll definitely be able to uh, talk with her about that case and about what your findings were. Exactly. All right, so everybody should definitely go out and check out the AtlanticCoastUFOs.com. Uh, now, Matt, how's things going tonight on your investigation tonight? Oh, we're, we're already having some very interesting things happen uh, here. A number of people here got uh, Don from Four Seasons Paranormal, Ron from uh, New England Ghost Projects. So I've got, you know, we've got Andy here from uh, Greenville Paranormal. Uh, Carl Johnson's here with Laura Casey from uh, New England's Anomalies Research. And, of course, it's Tom DiAgostino's house. Which he makes it easy for him. house here in Putnam, Connecticut. Uh, we've already had some very interesting events. Uh, now, what's interesting about what happened earlier is uh, Tom's wife is an ardent vegetarian. She mm -hmm. doesn't even, will not even touch, never mind whether... You know, something's being cooked. She won't even touch it in a frozen package type of thing. Uh, Don and I were in an adjacent room, and um, we came back into the kitchen, and there was a frozen turkey leg set on the kitchen table. And when we uh, asked Tom's wife about it, like she started to freak out because, you know, like I said, she doesn't touch any meat. And it wasn't there when Don and I were there two seconds before it had turned around. What was really interesting is the bag that it was in was completely warm and dry. So if somebody had just taken this thing out of the freezer and set it on the table, you know how things, when you mm -hmm. take them out of the freezer, still frost-covered? Sure. You know what I mean? At least it wasn't like the steak in Poltergeist. That's, that that would have been bad. Uh, yeah, it, it, was, it was quite interesting and a little unnerving because we know that, you know, Tom's wife didn't take it out, and none of us touched it. How the heck it got from the you know, freezer onto the table is still a question. Uh, a lot of events like that have happened in this house. Anything that you 
you point out as something of interest in the house later on winds up getting moved. And <laughs> so it's, it's definitely... Tom has already noted, and, you know, he's very good at documenting everything that's been going on this, in this house very diligently. It's definitely an intelligent and, haunting, we can say. That. Yeah. Uh, there's uh, Now, what's really neat about this is um, the house was a convalescent home for many years. The last owner died in the facility here. I mean, well, died in the house. It was no longer a facility, but now it's a private home. But um, And it's remained empty for two years. And even the neighbors, every surrounding neighbor came up to Tom and says, we've seen the owner standing on the front porch. You know. And, and, and Where they would think it would normally freak out somebody else trying to buy the property. Tom was like, good. It's my house. Yeah, that's, <laughs> yeah. that's what I want. Yeah, and we've we've got night vision cameras. We've got, I've got my uh, recording equipment all set up. We 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 got teams running up and downstairs, going a little bit here and there. Would you like to speak to Tom and get uh, his input? Sure, real quickly, sure. All right, here you go. Hello. Hi, Tom. How are you? Good. How are you doing? Oh, we're doing well, and I'm I'm surprised that uh, you're willing to let all these people traipse around in your house. Oh, I know, yeah, huh? It, it, you, you, should have just, you should have done it last week and had a combination ghost hunt Super Bowl party. Yeah, yeah. Then you I only got to feed him <laughs> once. <laughs> We're hoping to have better luck than the Patriots did, unfortunately. <laughs> so speaking of which, we have to announce who the winner is. I hope you brought your notes, Matt. Now, um, Tom, when you when you looked into buying this house, obviously, you know, the fact that it was haunted was a, was a key draw for you. Actually, when we did ask them, they... they um, because they have to disclose it. And when we did ask them, the guy dropped his head and, like, just thought we were going to say, okay, we're out of here. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, we have heard things. There has been stories. And we went, yeah, yeah. We started <laughs> freaking out. Like, and they just, like, they were all stunned. Even the lawyer was stunned. And they, they all of a sudden, dollar signs appeared in their eyes and the price went up 20 grand. Yeah, it could have, I know. <laughs> So uh, well, it was too late. We already made our deal. So Matt was talking about some of the activity that's that's going on tonight, but this is just something that you live with on a daily basis, you know, apportation of objects and. Yes, actually, yeah, it's um, very, very. There's been so many. I, I got three pages of incidents because we've been logging them down. Everything from EVPs, um, things you can hear rustling around downstairs, like someone's going through the drawers and knocking stuff off the table, and there's no one down there and we have a couple of pets but they're always with us mm-hmm. when the stuff happens and the pets aren't with us we probably you know we say ah it could be them but it's just i mean when things last week we had a few people over here during the day and they, we have this uh thing on the door a metal like bells and stuff and it just looked like somebody it looked like somebody whacked it and we were standing right next to it you know like we're, well not next to it but like about 10 feet from it mm-hmm. And then the two people who were with us who were visiting, they turned around and saw it, and they were, like, almost freaked. <laughs> and we're like, yeah, it's just a ghost. <laughs> All right, well, we will let you guys get back to your investigation. But now, just before we let you go, you have you have digital recorders running, microphones, night vision, infrared cameras. Out of all that equipment, the one question I have to ask is, did Arlene make brownies? Yes, she did. All right, well, then you're going to have to make sure some of those get back into Moniz's equipment. And he brings oh, yeah, him back we'll, to we'll Matt and Mizzle. Back with Matt. Sounds great. And, you know, we'd, we'd love to go down there sometime, Tom, and do a show from your house if that's at all possible. Oh, absolutely. No problem. All right.
No problem. Enjoy the rest of your life. Happy hunting and stay safe. Well, of course, you have to stay safe because it's your home. Have a good night. Take it easy, Tom. Tell Matt we said good night. Good night. Thanks. That is Tom D'Agostino, author of Haunted Massachusetts, Haunted Rhode Island, Haunted New Hampshire, and I forget the the latest ones, Pirate Ghosts and, and, oh, but if you go to SchifferBooks.com, you'll be able to find uh, all of Tom's books as well. So, And who knows, maybe there's a forthcoming book on his house as well. Now, before we get into the week in weird, just one more thing we want to tell you about. And that is on Friday, February 29th, the Cape and Islands Paranormal Research Society is presenting John Zaffis at the Cape Cod Community College. Uh, Mr. Zaffis will join Capers to talk about some of his true documented cases and the work he is doing in the field today. He is a longtime friend of Capers, and he'll be discussing some of the cases where he had to remove haunted items and where they wind up at his museum. He will go over some of his cases of possession that he's dealt with, where an exorcism had to be performed, and what the outcome was. And, of course, John is also the nephew of famed demonologist Ed and Lorraine Warren, so he's going to have plenty of stories and, and exciting tales to tell you. It is a multimedia presentation as well. It'll be February 29th at Lecture Hall B at Cape Cod Community College from 7 to 9 p.m., the cost is absolutely free, but donations are always accepted. For more information, you can go to Capers website, caiprs.com. It's also linked up on the links page at the all-new SpookySouthCoast.com. More bad news. Well, I got a great show for you today, which is wonderful. Weird stuff. I feel, I feel so very The Week in Weird. Now, Matt Costa, I think it was last week uh, you shared, maybe the week before, you shared with us a story about the Texas UFOs. Yes. And I don't know if you saw this, if it came across your your radar at all this week, but there's actually been a follow-up story uh, about the, the gentleman who was kind of at the center of the Texas UFO sightings. Uh, Ricky Sorrells. And this comes from the Stephenville Empire Tribune in Texas. Ricky Sorrells is frustrated and a little angry. Since his interview with the Associated Press, he has stayed quiet regarding the daytime UFO sightings on his property near Dublin, but there's more than one reason for his silence. He believes military officials have been harassing him by flying military aircraft over his property at low altitudes at all hours of the day and night. He runs livestock on his place and said the cattle don't react well to the disturbances and it's been hard to get any sleep. Uh, He made international news along with other witnesses on January 14th when the AP contacted him for his story and took video of the exact spot where the UFO was seen along with Sorrell's description of the object. Not just once, but four times he claims to have seen the massive flying object that he estimates to be the length of, quote, three or four football fields. And he says he doesn't know why he keeps coming back here, uh, but he said that someone who represented himself as a lieutenant colonel knows what it is and Sorrell wants an explanation. The man contacted him by telephone January 15th, one day after the story that Matt Costa shared with us. Uh, I didn't worry about writing his name down or taking notes, Sorrell said. I didn't know what was about to happen, but I think he said he was with the Air Force. He said the conversation started off nice enough, but that uh, he's asked to come by, and when Sorrell told him that he needed time to think about it, the man became really arrogant and told him he wasn't going to be taking no for an answer. Uh, And then... He said, uh, after the conversation became heated, he told the man not to cross his cattle guard. Sorrell said the man responded with, Son, we have the same caliber weapons as you, but a lot more of them. So, for whatever reason, uh, this gentleman got into it with Sorrell's on the phone, and now all of a sudden there's military flyovers taking place. Uh, 
the helicopters have quit flying over his property, but the F-16s haven't slowed down. Before the conversation took place with the suspected military officer, Sorrells related a late-night experience with a large transport helicopter and three smaller helicopters at 2.30 in the morning. Uh, he said that he got up to work to go to work, and he went outside, and he, that's when he saw these helicopters flying over his property. Uh, he said an acquaintance with whom he would not name and a former member of the military told him, you need to shut your mouth about what you saw. So there you have it. Ricky Sorrells being harassed by the military. Uh, does that surprise you at all, Matt? No. I mean, this is, it's, 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 it's both common when we hear reports of UFOs. It's common for this type of harassment to, to follow those who come public with it. But it's also common to hear these stories from people who have claimed to have UFO and who got a taste of that attention and say, gee, I kind of want that attention to keep going. And, you know, next thing you know, we hear about helicopters flying over their property. So it's, it's a double-edged sword. Yeah, you would think the, the government would be a little low, little, uh, more uh, go under the radar a little bit yeah. and not fly F-16s over his house. Yeah, I mean... You'd think they would just have a pizza delivery van or something. Yeah, you know, there's... Disguised. There's, there's way better ways of doing it than to have repeated yeah. flyers over his house. But then again, if if all you're trying to do is scare him, too, I mean, I guess you know maybe that'd be enough. But I, I think that a lot of times, you know, we don't realize that there's a number of uh, helicopters and F-16s that fly over our houses... Until we have a UFO experience and then we're looking for them. But yeah. that's just that's also true. one of my opinions. Okay, what do you have for us? <laughs> All right. Uh, from BBC News, Norway is planning to build a doomsday vault inside of a mountain on an Arctic island to hold a seed bank of all known varieties of, w- of the world's crops. The Norwe- Norwegian government will hollow out a cave in icebound island of Spitsbergen to hold the seed bank. It will be designed to withstand global catastrophes like nuclear war or natural disasters that would destroy the the planet's natural source of food. The seed collection is being organized by Global Crop Diversity Trust. What will go into the cave is a copy of all material that is currently in collection spread spread, spread all around the world. Jeff Houghton of the Trust told BBC's Today program, uh, Mr. Houghton said that there were currently... 1,400 seed banks around the world, but a large number of them were located in countries where they were either politically unstable or faced threats of natural and en- faced threats from their natural environment. The Norwegian government is due to start work on the seed ball next year, when it will drill into the sandstone mound on Spitsbergen, which is about uh, 600 miles from the North Pole. Permafrost will be kept will keep the vault below below freezing point, and seeds will further be protected by meter-thick walls of reinforced concrete, two airlocks, and high-security blast-proof doors. The number of seeds and types of plants in the bank will be determined by the countries wishing to use it. So, Well, you know, we I have a... Sorry, go ahead. I don't know how, uh, how good this will be if a nuclear fallout or something happens. I don't it's think... It's uh, a meter-thick. How, I mean, how, how are you going to get through the blast doors and everything after uh, I don't know. That's a good point. Maybe yeah, there's maybe it's like Terminator. There's a Terminator yeah. on the other side that's going to turn this key when somebody gets to the that's door. True. That's what happened on Sarah Connor Chronicles this week. You know, but we do have a, a dedicated listener out in Norway who uh, could follow up on that story for us and let yeah. us know if there ever is a, a Armageddon. You know, she can let us know how they open them up. She's a loyal listener who contacted us this week uh, because she can't download iTunes uh, 
on her new computer. So she wanted to know how she could get the show. And, of course, I told her, just go to the all-new SpookySouthCoast.com where you can download all the archives of every show that we've ever done. And you can listen to them as a live stream or you can download the podcast. You can also get them from iTunes and Zoom as well. And also look for the new corrected spelling of Jeff Belanger's name. <laughs> Good job. Good job. <laughs> All right, one last story here before we wrap up the week in weird. This comes from the nationalledger.com by Christy Hall. Does Anna Nicole Smith still haunt the Seminole Hard Rock Hotel and Casino in Hollywood, Florida? One person believes that her ghost is there. It's been exactly one year since the Playboy Playmate passed away and the entertainment media went into a frenzy. She died in room 607 of the popular resort back in February 2007 at the age of 39, or 139, depending on which birth certificate you believe. Now, at least one guest that attended a party there earlier this year believes that she has spotted Anna Nicole's spirit wandering the resort. According to a report from In Touch Weekly, a woman named Stephanie Pont was among the guests who paid up to $200 to party at the hotel's Passion Club on New Year's Eve. The guest tells the Weekly Entertainment magazine that she believes that she saw the late star's ghost wandering the hotel. She said, The ghost looked just like Anna. I saw her in the hotel lobby. It's the talk of the area, said one local resident. Anna hasn't left the building yet. Smith's death sparked a bitter custody battle over her little baby, Daniel Lynn Hope. Eventually, DNA tests would prove that California photographer Larry Burkhead was the father. He now has custody of the little girl, and the Seminole Hard Rock Hotel and Casino have property, apparently, of Anna Nicole Smith's spirit. So, there you go. That's one hotel that I'd like to stay in sometime, because uh, maybe they can prove to me that there really is a succubus. <laughs> hey That's it for the Week in Weird this week. If you have anything you'd like to pass on for the Week in Weird, just go to the message board. I'm sorry, excuse me, the forum at SpookySouthCoast.com. Click on the Week in Weird thread there. Drop the story in there, and if we use it on the show, we'll send you a bumper sticker. So stay tuned. We'll be right back. We'll get back into the discussion, the psychic life of Abraham Lincoln with Susan B. Martinez, Ph.D., when we come back here on Spooky South Coast. The story of the hot rod race when the Fords and the Lincolns were setting the pace. That story is true, I'm here to say, cause I was driving that Model A. It's got a Lincoln motor and it's really souped up and that Model A body makes it look like a puppet. It's got eight cylinders and use them all. Got overdrive, just won't stall. Beaming we'll from the studios of AM 1420 WBSN into the night and beyond. Here's more of Spooky South Coast. All right, Hot Rod Lincoln. There you go. It's <laughs> that might be the first time somebody's made that connection with uh, Abraham Lincoln and, and Hot Rod Lincoln and spiritualism and psychic abilities. What do you think, Matt? Do you with think Hot Rod Lincoln? Yeah, yeah. What do you What do you think? I don't know. First time somebody's made that connection. Or no, I do. I mean, do you think you know it's going to drive Pappy to drinking? Maybe. All right. That's a great song. You know, it's 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 one of the timeless classics that. Uh, that just never goes away, and I wish the version that's out there now by my colleague uh, at NBA coverage, Steve Bullpet, would go away. <laughs> just take a shot at him for that. That's on a different radio station, so I can't talk about that. All right, well, let's get back right into the discussion with our author tonight, Susan B. Martinez, Ph.D. She wrote The Psychic Life of Abraham Lincoln, and we will talk to her some more about Abraham Lincoln's life and some of his mystical experiences. If you have any questions or comments or 
about spiritualism in general or Lincoln directly, you can give us a call at 508-996-0500, 508-291-0500. And now, uh, Susan, I know that you don't address a lot of the paranormal phenomena surrounding uh, Lincoln in the later years, but uh, naturally, you know, we'd be remiss if we didn't mention that he's probably the most famous inhabitant still living in the White House. Uh, and that his ghost has been seen frequently both there and around Washington, D.C. Do you think that making that, having that connection with spiritualism and life might be part of the reason why he's still seen so frequently? That because he knows that in his time here on Earth he was able to make a connection with the spirit world, he's trying to do the reverse now? Well, it is uh, generally recognized by experts or specialists in the psychic area that people who have been clairvoyant in, in their lifetime uh, carry over that ability to the spirit world and are the more proficient communicators from the other side. Uh, so, yeah, there is a carryover. Um, I, I just have a problem with it. I think it's... I didn't deal with that part of the Lincoln story because I think there's uh, a certain amount of myth and fancy connected it, to it. It definitely does seem like there's a, a lot of it is just folklore and, and myth, um, especially when you hear, you know, about current presidents uh, who, uh, current administrations, people within an administration will run into the ghost of Lincoln, say, during a, a time of national crisis. Uh, but then again, at the same time, if if you believe in the idea that hauntings and and spiritual activity are just, you know, residual energy that's made an imprint on something, I mean, the White House would be, you know, obviously, it'd be very imprinted with a lot of emotional energy, and where Lincoln carried that type of uh, strong emotion with his concern for the war, uh, his grief that he carried with him through the White House. I mean, I could see where that would be recorded and trapped within that dwelling. Okay, let me say this. I think that as an advanced uh, soul, uh, he would, under normal circumstances, have very little to do with the earth after passing from it. Mm -hmm. Now, on the other hand, I would want to say that the fact that he was uh, murdered, uh, shot to death, shot into eternity in uh, a heartbeat, would would or could change that because most of your haunters most of your earthbound spirits are in the category of are in the category of persons who had a sudden or violent death mm. or something similar to that that would be the only aspect of the lincoln story that would uphold the idea of a uh, restless haunting spirit yeah, I mean, I think if if people are seeing him, it's just it's a residual energy imprint. It's not really Lincoln's consciousness attached to it, because like you said, you know, he's probably destined for for other things uh, once he leaves this plane. Now, a lot of the criticism uh, about Lincoln at the time and and even now is people don't really want to buy into the idea that a president was sitting in at seances, and so somewhere along the lines, if the theory became and it's what's been 
accepted by history for the most part until your great book came out is that, you know, it was actually Mary Lincoln who was the spiritualist and that, you know, her husband was kind of just playing along to her fancies. Well, right, and that's the cover story. And, you know, they did the same thing with Jefferson until uh, DNA protocols came out. Uh, for 200 years they tried to deny his long-standing a relationship with Sally Hemming, who produced, what, five children for him, mm-hmm. mulatto children. They're a big clan now. They, they're they alive and well. Well, it wasn't until they were able to uh, test uh, the DNA of his descendants that it was, in fact, verified. And even then, it was said that it was his nephew who had contributed the, uh, that it was, Jefferson's nephew that had contributed, but if you look into that story, you do see that it's a fact that Jefferson uh, lived with Sally Hemming and produced offspring with her. Uh, so we're always looking at cover story if there's something that is unappetizing to the uh, conventional wisdom, the received wisdom. I mean, especially, you know, in, in earlier times, history was always written uh, the way they wanted it to be read by later generations. It's not necessarily truth. It's what they want to see stand out uh, in the long run. And I think, you know, is because a lot of what we've been taught about Lincoln came in a period after where spiritualism was at its height, when it was kind of in one of those, you know, low points for it. Uh, right. It, it was kind of, a like you said, a cover-up deal. Uh, but obviously... There's also, you know, the reports that Mary Lincoln was not of total fit mental health, and the idea was that Lincoln was kind of playing along to, you know, keep her from dropping into uh, worse states of mental affairs. But I, I found nothing at all to substantiate that. Mm-hmm. To, to substantiate that he was playing along or that she right, was that under... She was playing along. She was certainly a mental case, mm-hmm. but I found nothing uh, to to show that he, in fact, you know, um, one of the uh, seances that I was able to document because it was there in the literature in, in Nettie Colburn Maynard's uh, memoir, this occurred on February 5th, 1863, and it even made the newspapers afterwards because there was uh, some physical mediumship, this piano, it later became known as the dancing piano, would uh tap time with the music would rise up in the air and come down and so forth. That was the February 5th seance in Georgetown. Mary was on her way. She was getting into the uh, carriage with her small entourage, and Lincoln came bursting out of the uh, White House and said, where are you going? She said, to a circle in Georgetown. He said, hold on a second, I'll go with you. He had been in the cabinet meeting, and they were discussing some problems in the war um, that was only known to them. Mm-hmm. Uh, something, it was, you know, his uh, intuition that kicked in. They were kind of, they were in a tight spot. They didn't know, uh, they didn't have any answers. Something kicked in there, and he felt he should go to this sitting in Georgetown. He was already familiar with the Laurie Circle, which is uh, the name of that. Georgetown. Well, he did accompany her, and uh, so, and and you see, uh, this relates in no way to the way they have portrayed 
him and Mary in connection with the sure, yeah. spiritualism. He, in this case, yeah, he followed her, but only on instinct. And in fact, at that sitting, he got the insight that he was looking for. And that's what that was the uh, seance where it was decided that he would visit the war front based on advice from Dr. Bamford. Now, wasn't he also kind of... Uh dwelling on the idea of, of emancipation. I mean, he, he wasn't, he hadn't quite committed to actually making the proclamation yet. Uh, and wasn't he getting some advice from the spirit world, uh, telling him that this is something he had to do? Uh, yes. And we have to go back a half a year from that 'm I can get that kind of cooperation I'm definitely buying into the program right. uh, but also I mean in addition to these uh, outside forces uh, from the other side you know making influences in, in Lincoln's life like you said before you know he was very clairvoyant and he, he seemed to have you know some premonitions of his own future uh, for example uh, you know it, it's it's a pretty famous story but when uh, I think it was on the eve of his reelection uh, and he saw the double image in the mirror right he originally saw that the night of his first election, first election. Which, which was late in 1860, and he was so fascinated with it that he uh, continued to look for it, and he set up experiments. He set up the looking glass at exactly the angle that he had originally perceived it, and then even in the White House, he continued to um, uh, continue those experiments. Uh, so he's, he's kind on of like an early. Occasions, he did not see the image, but one more time it did come back. He, he was like an early paranormal investigator. That's true. Trying to, trying to debunk uh, debunk what happened, and so I mean, but he saw that that double image is kind of like a sign that he wouldn't live through the presidency. That's, that's right. Um, uh, if you go into the paranormal literature, this sort of thing is called scrying. Um, uh, looking for images in uh, uh, crystal or water or just any number of ways. Mm-hmm. And it's been done all over the world. Uh, shamanistic procedures in which uh, pools of, of liquid are used to gaze into the future. For Lincoln, it happened spontaneously that first time, but after afterwards he wanted to test it, and he, he did his paranormal 
And another dream that he had, of course, we'll get into the one that he had uh, on the eve of his assassination in a moment, but one dream that he had that was frequently recurring, uh, at least that I've read, um, is that he had a, a dream that he was on a boat and that the boat was taking him somewhere and that this dream always preceded uh, major events uh, within the war, within the course of his life. Is that is that something that you recall? Yes, and it's a very striking thing because it was a recurrent dream. Uh, apparently he had it eight times. Uh, he had it on the night before Willie died. He had it on the night before Eddie died, before both of his sons died. He also had it right before his own death. And then on several other occasions, he had it right before a major battle in the war. And he was convinced that it was a portent of something dramatic to happen. And and I thought I read somewhere, it might have been uh, in, in Hans Holzer's book, but where they he felt that the, the body of water he was crossing was the River Styx. It, it was Holzer, but uh, it was Holzer's metaphor, not okay. Lincoln's. Okay. Lincoln never wanted to look at the gloomy side of his omens, even though he was quite aware that they were accurate. And, of course, the, the dream that uh, most people who study Lincoln are aware of is the one he had, I believe it was on the eve of his death or, or shortly shortly before it, where um, he had this dream. Well, well, why don't you share with everybody the, the vision he had with the uh, the funeral, the state funeral? Um, three nights running before his murder, he had the same dream. Uh, are you talking about the one of the corpse in the White House? Yes. Yeah, and he, uh, he, he heard sobbing and wailing, and so his dream buddy got up and went th through the White House until he followed the sounds to the East Room, and there was laid out the corpse. And the face was not showing, but he asked the a soldier who was guarding the catafalque, "What, what has happened? Who's been shot? Who's been shot in the White House? Who's who's dead in the White House?" And the soldier answered him, "The president has been assassinated." And at that very moment, there was this very loud wailing and sobbing, and it woke him up, and he didn't sleep anymore that night. Uh, he shared this dream with William Cook, who was his White, ha White House aide, and he went over it with Cook on the afternoon of April 14th, only a few hours before he went to the Ford Theater. Was there any kind of premonition on his part about going to the theater in general? Because I've, I've heard different reports that uh, he didn't feel that he should go to the theater, that he was That's very... That's exactly right. Um, he... Just think of it, you know, he realized that it was a little chancy thing to do, particularly with these dreams piling up. But uh, on the one hand, he had promised his wife, and on the other hand, they had run an announcement of it in the newspaper that day. In fact, they said that, um, that General uh, Grant was going to be there with his wife. Well, it turns out uh, Grant's wife was kind of psychic herself. He absolutely demanded that he not go, and in fact, they left town that afternoon. It's a very interesting story in itself, Julia Grant and, and her husband and what happened that day. But Lincoln, you know, being the nice guy that he is, he didn't want to disappoint the public because it had been announced he was there. And of course, when they arrived 
at the theater, all the actors just stopped what they were doing, and the uh, orchestra played Hail to the Chief. And, you know, uh, they arrived quite late. And then at 10.10 or 10.12, Booth, John Wilkes Booth got through and shot him in, in the back of the head. And did you ever notice, Tim, that American clocks in the stores are set at that hour, 10.10? No, I never noticed. Yeah, that's for Lincoln. Really? Well, I guess now I'll definitely uh, pay attention to it. (laughs) Well, it's interesting that you mentioned Grant. We could do a whole other episode uh, on this alone, but I I thought I read somewhere that Grant was actually involved in spiritualism as well. Uh, President Grant himself. Julia Grant was. Okay. But uh, Ulysses... S. Grant was not, and uh, denied it emphatically when rumors started going around. You know, and through the course of developing the psychic life of Abraham Lincoln and and putting all this information together, uh, it it becomes clear that you believe that he was definitely uh, involved with the spiritualist movement. To what degree do you think that he was involved? Do you think he was, you know, a, a practitioner in a, on his own right that we just haven't learned about, or do you think he was just one of these, you know, the, as you quote, fellow traveler, somebody who was just sympathetic to the cause? Yes, I think he was a fellow traveler, but it is known that at uh, seances he became uh, semi-entranced himself and re- received some extraordinary messages. Uh, so he kind of uh, went with the flow. He did not originate um, psychic predictions from his mouth, and he did not uh, consider himself in any way a medium, even though he had quite a few psychic gifts. But didn't he feel some sort of connection with the spirit of George Washington? Very much so. Uh, I tried to cover that in Chapter 1 of the book, there's an incredible uh, link between the two of them. And even in his time, the people were very aware of it because Lincoln was rising to uh, the status of folk hero that until that time only Washington had occupied. He matched and exceeded Washington. Uh, And they are linked together in so many ways. They're linked together in prophecy. I show it in chapter chapter 1. Chapter 2, I think it is, Chapter 1 or Chapter 2, in the year 1832, that's the year of Washington's birth, uh, the psychic uh, William Hope in England made a prophecy in verse, just like the Nostradamus stuff, Mm -hmm. and he predicted what would happen through the hand of George Washington, and then using a kind of... uh, numerological um, code, he also predicted uh, Lincoln. And those are the only two American figures that uh, were in his prophecy. So they're definitely uh, forever linked, even if even if not psychically, you know, historically, they'll always be seen as the two, you know, greatest early presidents. Uh, That's right. Probably if you Google hope prophecy, you could probably get it. And Going forward, uh, you know, looking now that people are becoming a little bit more aware of the history of spiritualism and a little bit more open-minded about it, uh, because you know it's it's not all table wrappings and and table tippings and all that. You know, there's there's much more to it than that. Do you think that we can look at Abraham Lincoln as you know one of these f- 
on the forefront not only of freedom for all people, but also freedom for all beliefs and freedom for people to look into the spirit world uh, for advice and guidance. Very much so, because uh, even at the time that he became the great emancipator, that was one of the uh, epithets they used for Lincoln. He had many, but uh, he, he caught that one, the great emancipator. Even at that time that in his own comments, he would speak not only for the slavery of the body, but the slavery of the mind. Mm -hmm. That's a quote from Lincoln. Uh, so, yes, he was, and, and he saw a far destiny. He saw this as his time, as the beginning of something very prophetic, because, uh, like I say, it's still a work in progress, and the slavery of the mind is something we still need to overcome. Exactly. Well, of course, in my favorite Lincoln quote, uh, one of his opponents uh, called him two-faced uh, in, deba in a debate. And uh, do you remember what his response was to that? Um, no, but I bet it was humorous. Yeah, they, they, they called him two-faced, and he said, do you think if I had two faces, this would be the one that I choose? Right. <laughs> <laughs> so, I mean, that just shows you, you know, just what kind of a grounded individual he was, so... Well, we thank you very much, Susan Martinez, author of The Psychic Life of Abraham Lincoln. Any new projects coming down the works? Or? Oh, yes. I'm always working. Well, hopefully uh, we can have you back to talk more in the future. I would love to. All right. It was great having you, and thank you for at least, at least opening the door for people to start to uh, believe that you know there's more to Abraham Lincoln than what we've been told in the history books. Thank you so much, Tim. I really want to thank you. Thanks. Have a great night. And that is Susan Martinez, Ph.D. Her book, The Psychic Life of Abraham Lincoln, is available in bookstores everywhere, Amazon.com, and we'll also link it up on SpookySouthCoast.com as well. Uh, Matt Costa will be back here next Saturday night. It's going to be just you and I again. Really? Yeah, because Matt Lonies is going to the Atlantic Coast UFO Conference yep. down in Atlantic City, so it's just going to be the two of us. I mean, what are, what are we going to do? I don't know. I think we should, you know, we should go all out with that party we had planned. The, the one Ooh. we didn't want to invite Moniz to with the, the strippers and the cake <laughs> and the streamers and all that stuff. No, but we will be back here to talk to you more about the paranormal as we are each and every Saturday night. Remember, if you ever miss any part of the show or you want to go back and listen to some old shows, and let's face it, I mean, some of them, you know, you just have to go back and listen to because it's been so long since you heard them. I do it. Yeah. I go back. I listen to the R. Gary Patterson show at least once a month. We have to have him back on soon. But um, Sometimes I look back and I'm like, we had that show? I yeah, yeah. Hey, have we ever had guy? this guy on? Oh, yeah, we did talk to this guy. So, uh, But you can get them all off the all-new SpookySouthCoast.com with the great new archives created for us by our friend Tim Banal of Banal of America. And make sure you check out his website linked up right on the front page of SpookySouthCoast.com. And that's the place where you want to go for all the latest news regarding the show, the paranormal in general, upcoming events. And we're actually working on a new feature where we're going to try and get some guest blogs uh, from some noted people in the paranormal, see if they have anything to say about what's going on, and we'll offer our own insights. Maybe we can get Matt Costa to offer his beliefs in spiritualism. What do you think? I don't know. What do you think? Just real quick, what, what's your belief in spiritualism? Uh, I'm against it. Whatever it is, you're I'm against, against it. it. All right. Mm. Well, there you go. That is our show for tonight. So until next week, we want you all to stay spectacular. Rest assured, listener, that my time here has not been easy, and what you have just heard was not fiction. Although, in many a desperate moment, I most certainly wish it had been.
It's over for now, it seems. Or at least, until yesterday begins again. Tomorrow, 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 tomorrow. Look, I know the supernatural is something that isn't supposed to happen, but it does happen.